Hello, and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, May 13th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story, Ready for Growth, More Members, Investments Ahead for Fin Capital by Joe Gardiaz. FIN Capital Investor Association, Iowa's female angel Angel Investor Network is shaking off the fog of the pandemic and preparing to recruit more investor members this year. Despite the challenges created by the pandemic, Finn Capital has hosted member meetings and in recent months has returned to in-person pitch events. Even before the pandemic began, the group surpassed a significant investment milestone, passing $1 million in member funds collectively invested across its portfolio of companies. The organization, whose acronym stands for Female Investors Network, was launched in September 2016 by a core of seven women business leaders. The impetus for forming an angel network for female leaders came at the urging of then-Lieutenant Governor Kim Reynolds and Iowa Economic Authority Director Debbie Durham, who borrowed the idea from a visit to the Women's Capital Connection, an angel network in Kansas City. Originally operating under the wing of the nonprofit Iowa Center for Economic Success, Finn Capital attracted 25 accredited female investors by late 2016, a year ahead of its goal. The organization transitioned away from the Iowa Center in mid-2020, with the standalone organization formed on January 1, 2021. Last summer, Finn Capital's board approached Natalie Battles, an experienced organizational professional, to step in as its executive director. They were looking to put some energy behind organizing the association and getting into a better meeting pattern. At that point, getting back to meeting in person and getting things going said Battles, who is president of Capture Management Solutions. She has been working with Finn Capital since July 2021. One of the other priorities that the group has at this point is to grow their membership, Battles said. They have seen some evolution since they started in 2016. Some members have come on and some members have come off, and so we're looking to find those opportunities to get more accredited investors that are seeking this opportunity and be part of their group, she said. The group currently has 17 active investor members. If a member decides an investment is a good fit, the average stake taken in any one company is $5,000 per person, with $50,000 the usual minimum collective investment in a company. Fin Capital's vision has been to provide a forum for Iowa women, many of whom have run their own companies and have their own wealth, with the interest but no background in angel investing. On the investment side, Fin Capital does not limit its investments to women-owned businesses only, but has found that a good portion of the companies that seek funding have women in leadership roles. Rowena Crosby, founder of training company Tiro International, joined Finn Capital about a year after it was founded and has since been an active investor. She currently has ownership stakes in eight of the companies and was asked by Finn Capital's members to speak on their behalf to the business record. The organization keeps the names of its member investors and companies to which, in which it's invested confidential. Crosby said, 
I am an entrepreneur, so I have a passion for entrepreneurship and growing our entrepreneurial culture. So being a part of that in a variety of, variety of ways is of great interest to me. The reason I love this particular angel network is that you can get involved in a lot of investments with not a huge personal investment, she said. Crosby said Fin Capital's membership diversity provides a great deal of security when assessing the potential risks of various investments. I think one of the things that's very scary for investors is how do you know if you should invest in someone, she said. We're invested in all kinds of businesses. Some of them are in the medical field, some of them are in technology, some of them are in services. How can you possibly vet all that? We work in collaboration with each other, and you've got people who have different levels of expertise weighing in, so you feel good about the decision, she said. Nine months each year, they take a break each summer, Finn Capital's members meet monthly, hearing at least one pitch, sometimes two. Occasionally, we'll skip a month hearing pitches so we can have a business meeting. And then there's always time on the agenda for updates on the other investments that we've got, Crosby said. Partnering with other regional angel networks has been a huge benefit, she said. The angel networks do talk, and in fact, some of our referrals come from angel networks in other states. And I have to tell you, when you bring a group of women together, I apologize for the stereotype, but when they do due diligence, they seriously do due diligence. We had put together a due diligence committee, and those CEOs probably didn't know what hit them. Questions after questions after questions. That was a learning process for them and for us. Even if we didn't invest in them, they were always grateful because they hadn't had to think that hard about their business until we came along. And one of the benefits of being part of a network of other angel investors is that the burden of diligence isn't quite as heavy because we can rely on the diligence efforts of other investor groups, and they can do that with us, Crosby said. Without Finn Capital, two members from each group that invests in a particular company are assigned to act as, quote, authorized members, end quote, responsible for staying in touch with the company's CEO to stay up to date on the status of the business and their investment. We're just getting started with some companies, and there are some, I believe, we're getting pretty close to an exit, Battles said. There are some that are just getting ready to launch products. At our latest meeting, we talked about one that has some products on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., and getting a lot of exposure. So they're in a variety of different stages, and that's a really rich part of the discussion that takes place. Just discussing where each company is at, getting a feel for what the companies are, what feedback members have. It's fun to listen and hear the different nuances of that life cycle of investments, Battles said. The pandemic actually provided some beneficial shifts that encouraged more statewide growth, Battles noted. By hosting some of our events virtually, that actually gives us the opportunity to engage our members who aren't located right in the Des Moines area. We've got some members on both sides of the state, and so it's nice that the group's coming to pitch to Finn some of our pitches we've been able to do by Zoom with the companies and with our investors, and it's worked really well, she said. Expanding Finn Capital's membership and consequently its investment portfolio would be a, quote, win for the entrepreneurs and angels, Crosby said. 
Angels aren't like moms and dads, aunts and uncles. They've got more questions. So that helps the entrepreneur who has often not thought about all the business strategy and business implications about their business in a little bit more powerful way, she said. An important caveat that Crosby conveyed from her fellow members was the importance of understanding that potential investors, quote, have to have a bit of a risk tolerance if you're going to do this, end quote. This is not necessarily part of your 401k and planned retirement, but if you've got the resources to do this, the intangible wins are just so heartwarming, she said. I can't tell you how happy you feel when you go to bed at night knowing you've helped some of these entrepreneurs. And it's great for the investors because we may get some exits and you'll have a financial return on your investment as well, she said. Putting on her Greater Des Moines Partnership chair hat for a minute, Crosby also noted that one of Des Moines' top priorities is boosting the entrepreneurial culture. That recent Ernst & Young study showed that our level of innovation and entrepreneurship could use a little boost when compared to our peers around the country, she said. You see Iowa State leaning into it. You see Drake leaning into it. And once somebody is inspired to start a business, well, after you've tapped your friends and family, where do you go for funds? Female accredited investors who have an interest in learning more about Finn Capital should send an email to the organization at info at finncapitalangels.com to find out about attending a future meeting or talking with a board member to learn more about membership. Next, the feature story from the Iowa Stops Hunger column. SNAP recipients feel pinch of reduced benefits while food pantries begin to see demand rise. By Michael Crum. Cecilia Prophet and her family are among those bracing for the decline in Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, benefits that took effect April 1st after Governor Kim Reynolds ended the public health disaster emergency proclamation that had increased SNAP benefits for recipients to the maximum level. Starting in April, SNAP benefits were reduced by 42%, a drop of more than $29 million a month, which anti-hunger advocates warn will drive need higher and increase the number of visits to food pantries to levels not seen since the early days of the pandemic. For Profit, whose Iowa City family is among the more than 290,500 Iowans receiving SNAP benefits, the decrease meant a loss of about $254 a month. It will also mean she and her family, including a three-year-old daughter and 10-month month-old son, will likely have to visit a local food pantry to make ends meet. Her husband, Connor Hilton, is a graduate student at the University of Iowa, where he is paid $20,000 a year to teach classes while he finishes his Ph.D. program in English. His take-home pay is about $1,700 a month. Profit, 30, said she has chosen to be a stay-at-home mom because of the cost of childcare which she estimated would be about $2,000 a month for her two children, making it financially untenable for her to work and pay for childcare. 
Her husband is also immunocompromised and works from home, so sending their children to daycare could also raise the risk of them bringing home illnesses that could get him sick and make him unable to work and go to school. The family who moved to Iowa from Utah in 2019 so Hilton could go to school has one car and pays more than $1,400 a month for rent. They are on Medicaid and receive benefits through the Women, Infants, and Children program. They also received the child care tax credit of $300 a month for their daughter and received the credit on their tax refund for their son, who was born during the pandemic. They also receive assistance to help pay their heating bill, she said. With the loss of the child care tax credit, WIC benefits declining, and the reduction of SNAP benefits, Profit said she's worried about how her family will get by. You pinch pennies wherever you can, but there's only so far that goes. And when there's no money coming in, you run out eventually, she said in the days leading up to the cut in SNAP benefits. Profit described how she has to ration food and milk to keep from running out before the next SNAP benefits arrive. Our toddler asks for more milk and we'd say, no, you have to wait until next month when the benefits are renewed because we don't have enough to make it to the end of the month, she said. It's tough as a parent. It's sad when they're crying and she doesn't understand why she can't have more milk. The loss of extra SNAP payment also comes as inflation is rising, driving food costs higher, making it even more difficult to stretch what SNAP benefits her family will continue to receive, Profit said. I know inflation hurts everyone, but most people have a little cushion they can dig into when prices go up. But if you're on SNAP, you don't have that cushion, she said. Profit said the enhanced SNAP benefits kept her from having to rely on a food pantry to feed her family. But with the reduction of benefits, she will likely visit the food pantry in her neighborhood. Her family will receive about $580 a month in SNAP starting in April, Profit said. Her family is an example of what those fighting food insecurity say will happen as more people visit food pantries to make up for the loss of SNAP benefits. When SNAP benefits were expanded, the number of visitors to food pantries across the state declined. But people on the front lines in the fight against hunger say those numbers are expected to jump significantly after the decrease in benefits takes effect. That, combined with increasing inflation and loss of child care tax credits, will have a long-term effect on food insecurity, said Michelle Book, president and CEO of the Food Bank of Iowa, which serves 55 counties in central and southeast Iowa. Fewer people are being helped, Book said. It was helping them to make ends meet. I think as we go into this summer, it's going to be a catastrophe. Kids will be out of school. They're not getting their child tax credit checks. I think we're moving into a period where this could perpetuate for a while. This isn't a quick inflation come and gone, which we thought it would be. We thought COVID was just going to take eight weeks. This is here to stay. This is going to be a much bigger problem for Iowa than COVID when it comes to food insecurity, she said. Officials with the Food Bank of Iowa said several of the food pantries in its network were already seeing increased need in the first half of April, and that the food bank was receiving orders that were double or triple in size from earlier in the year. Matt Unger, CEO of the Des Moines Area Religious 
Council, which operates a network of 14 food pantries, mobile pantries, and food warehouses, said that through mid-April, DMARC saw a 13% increase in food pantry traffic from March, with a 47% increase in visits by unique individual compared to the first two weeks of April 2021. We haven't seen a mid-month that approached anything close to this level over a prior year in a very long time, he said. Before the SNAP benefits were reduced, Unger forecast the visits would go up and possibly reach levels not seen since the early days of the pandemic. As of mid-April, four pantries in the DMARC network had already surpassed totals projected for the entire month, he said. Unger said he expects that the demand will only increase as more people's budgets are stretched. He said that DMARC saw its greatest number of individuals visiting a pantry in 2020, but that the overall number of visits was going down. DMARC served nearly 40,000 people last year, down from 59,000 people in 2020. We credited that to the increases in SNAP that we were seeing and some of the other government programs, Unger said. People who received increases in SNAP benefits were less likely to visit a pantry, but those numbers are already beginning to rise, as much as 7% in March as people tried to prepare for the loss of benefits, he said. We tried to prepare people for what April was going to bring, because it's going to be huge, Unger said. To prepare, DMARC had food on back order and worked to keep pantry shelves full in preparation for the expected increase in pantry traffic. Unger said DMARC expects to see as many as 20,000 more people returning to its pantries after SNAP benefits are reduced. Profit has tried to buy extra canned goods and a few extra boxes of cereal to keep her pantry stocked as long as possible after her family's SNAP benefits are reduced but she's nervous about what will happen once her small stockpile runs out. I think about it a lot, she said. Right now the fridge is full, but in a month or two, I don't know. It's stressful to think about. I'm nervous about it. Now turning to a closer look, meet a leader you should know. Lindsay Racy, Staff Vice President and General Manager, Care More Health System. By Joe Gardiaz. Since September 2020, Lindsay Racy has led Caremore Health's East Central region, which includes Iowa, Tennessee, Texas, Wisconsin, and Illinois. She's based in Des Moines. Before join, joining Caremore, she worked for 14 years in nonprofit health care for Planned Parenthood. Caremore entered the Iowa market in 2015 with the opening of a primary care clinic at 1530 East Euclid Avenue that also serves as a community health resource for Medicaid patients. In January, Caremore launched a mobile clinic service based at its Des Moines clinic that provides outreach to members, including monthly visits to Newton. Caremore, which is based in Cerritos, California, partners with Amerigroup, which is one of Iowa's contracted Medicaid managed care organizations. Both Amerigroup and Caremore are owned by Anthem, the largest for-profit managed health care company in the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. The writer posed several questions to Lindsay. 
Tell me more about CareMore and its presence in Iowa. CareMore is really well established in the Medicare space, but in 2015 they decided to take their expertise in Medicare and apply it to the Medicaid patient population. They opened two care centers at that time, the one here in Des Moines as well as one in Memphis, Tennessee, that focused on the Medicaid patient population, people ages 14 and older. CareMore's model was really born out of the fragmented system that so many members experienced navigating the healthcare system. We provide sort of a one-stop shop where you can see your primary care clinician and you can get that extra support. And we also have a behavioral health specialist. So you get all your services for the most part in one place. What does your role encompass? I basically oversee the business operations of things. That includes managing community partners and relationships in the community, that business development sort of work, kind of the face of care locally in the community. And I partner really closely with our physicians in terms of driving the clinical outcomes. I'm obviously not a clinician, but I help create strategies that help drive those outcomes. What is it about CareMore's care model that appealed to you? CareMore is what I call a radical common sense approach to healthcare. It's very different from other models you see. We are a primary care clinic, so patients can come to us for their annual preventive visits. They can also come for a sick visit or management of chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension. We put patients at the center of an interdisciplinary team made up of not only clinicians, but also case managers on staff. There is also a unique role we have called the community health worker to help address some of the social determinants of health that impact people. There is so much that goes into someone even getting to us for care, like transportation barriers, food insecurity, those teams really help coordinate folks to the resources that they need to address them. How does CareMore work with the Medicaid-managed care organization model? The member enrolls in Medicaid through the state, and at that time they choose one of the managed Medicaid plans. We partner with the Amerigroup Medicaid plan. As part of their plan, they are designated a primary care provider. Amerigroup can assign a patient to us, or a patient can select CareMore as their primary care provider. One of the things we pride ourselves on is the annual wellness visit. They're getting contacted back by our teams with results and action plans, and we really work to create a plan with a patient that works for them. And even small steps and changes in behavior or activities can really make a difference in the lives of the members. How would you say CareMore differentiates itself from other primary care providers that work with Medicaid patients? One thing I always hang our hat on is that we are really highly personalized. That's an experience you can certainly get at other locations, but it's something that we consistently deliver on, and it's a high-touch model. Typically, we're going to see our members more frequently to help manage some of those chronic diseases than potentially at other places. One of the unique things about serving a Medicaid patient population is they have a pretty big distrust sometimes of the healthcare system. And so having a kind of convenient clinic 
location isn't enough, so we also deliver care. As I said, those community health workers will actually help us go locate some of our patients. So whether that's there in a shelter or we find them at a food bank or things like that, and help them engage with care. So we provide that care mobily, and we also do virtual and telehealth care. What plans are there for growth in Iowa? We recently launched the mobile RV in January. Right now, we're going to Newton about once a month. If that membership were to grow and there was more interest in a service like that, we would definitely like to see that program grow. We could also explore using it more frequently in other communities as well. What kinds of services do you provide on a mobile basis? We can do a lot of the same things that we can do in the care centers. Not absolutely everything, but a lot. There is an exam room set up in it, so if a patient needs a physical exam or their wellness visit, we can do that. We can do some of the basic lab work, and it fits nicely with our virtual health offerings too, because we can do some follow-ups virtually and then see you at the mobile clinic when it's out in the community as well. Tell us a little about yourself. The University of Iowa is near and dear to my heart. I grew up in West Branch, which is about 10 miles east of Iowa City, and then I did my undergraduate at the University of Iowa. I love Hawkeye football, going to the games, tailgating, all of the things that are associated with Hawkeye football. I've lived in Des Moines about 14 years at this point. So at some point, I guess I say I'm from Des Moines. I enjoy camping and doing outdoor activities with my family. I have twins who are four years old, so they keep me busy for sure. At a glance, Lindsay's hometown, West Branch, Iowa. Education, bachelor's degree in psychology, University of Iowa. Master's degree in management with an emphasis in healthcare management, Kaplan University. Family, she and her husband, Derek, have four-year-old twins, Savannah and James. Phone, 515 515- Nine eight nine six zero zero one, and email Lindsay Racy. That's L I N D S A Y dot R A C E Y at caremore dot com. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, May thirteenth, twenty twenty two, on Iris the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. From the Business Records Insider Notebook, Bits and Bytes of the Finer Side of Iowa Business. Learn about Safari and its founder, Jelani Fenton. The startup has moved from one Des Moines-based accelerator to another. By Sarah Bogards. Right after wrapping up the Global Insurance Accelerator's 100-day program, Safari, a recruitment and training startup targeting the insurance workforce, is now taking part in Broker Tech Ventures' third accelerator cohort that launched in April. The company started in New York, where founder Jelani Fenton started his insurance career in the leadership development program at insurance brokerage firm Marsh & McLennan. He was one of 50 graduates in the program, but the only male person of color. This is the largest insurance brokerage in the world, Fenton said. If they can't find three or even four candidates of color within their pipeline, 
then I definitely recognized that there wasn't that large of a pipeline. With his lived experience driving him, he started Safari about seven months ago with a focus on addressing three issues. An aging workforce, the workforce's lack of diversity and awareness of the different roles in insurance. Fenton's four-year degree wasn't in insurance, which also helps spur the mission of Safari to expand access to insurance careers for candidates from different backgrounds and experiences, given the wider shift towards skills-based credentials. We're talking about candidates that are highly talented, but they've just, for whatever reason, that four-year degree path might not necessarily be what they are looking to pursue, he said. These are highly talented, highly capable people that just need that opportunity. Registered apprenticeships have emerged as a way for companies to introduce new candidates into their pipeline and provide career and educational training at the same time. Some insurance companies have adopted the practice, and Fenton wants to make it more widespread. Safari plans to work with community colleges, military transition offices, and employers to create a 12-month program available nationwide where apprentices can gain career training and pursue a two-year degree in risk management while working in their area of interest in the industry. Fenton shared his perspective on the social impact of insurance, the effects of a diverse workforce on consumers, and his experience in the Global Insurance Accelerator. Editors note the following Q&A has been lightly edited for clarity and brevity. What are the reasons you see for the lack of a diverse workforce in the insurance industry? Firstly, it's difficult to get a large, diverse pipeline of candidates when you've got structural considerations around where our industry is typically recruiting from. Compared to, let's say, finance or accounting, which you can study anywhere, there's only so many different universities that you can go to study risk management and insurance, and programs are typically graduating less than 3,000. That's one piece where it will be very difficult for our industry to be able to recruit a more diverse pipeline because of the fact that they don't have the feeders on campuses around our country compared to other industries which, by default, are going to have a larger pool of candidates to pick from. Secondly, a lot of people have been recruited into this industry from family members or people that might come from their neighborhoods. As you think about that pipeline, if, historically, many folks say that they might fall into the insurance industry or they didn't necessarily set out to pursue a degree in the insurance industry, it's typically because they knew someone within the industry. We know what the typical makeup of the industry is, so it's going to make it very challenging for our industry to be able to recruit a more diverse pipeline of candidates when we don't have that many people in the industry to then pull their peers into the industry too. The last piece is just a lack of awareness. It really kind of ties back to the fact that even at campuses where there are not risk management and insurance programs, students just are not aware of the variety of different career paths that you can take in the insurance industry, and it's just not that viable option for them compared to finance or accounting. How can having a less diverse workforce affect consumers of color seeking insurance coverage? 
For example, it, let's say if you're a Spanish-speaking consumer and you're looking to purchase or literally just get information about your policy from someone, online there's so many open roles right now for bilingual customer service representatives and agents with that particular skill set. There are such large embedded folks coming from all these types of backgrounds in our communities across the country. The fact that there is not a market that is particularly servicing those types of consumers, we're talking about a $3 trillion multicultural consumer market in our country today, and insurance is something that everyone needs. We all know that the demographics of our country are shifting, and if you're an insurance company and don't have a workforce that aligns with the shifting demographics of our country, it's going to be really difficult for you to be able to tap into a growing market. And every insurance company is always looking for ways to grow. With social impact being a core value of Safari, how do you think it can be practiced in the insurance industry? When disaster strikes, the first company that you're going to call is the insurance industry. One of the hidden things that people don't know about the insurance industry is that it stimulates home ownership in our country, where they invest a lot in mortgages and other types of things that ultimately spur entrepreneurialism in our country, but also spur things such as home ownership and other things that give back to broader society. As I think about how the insurance industry can double down on that effort, we recognize that there's a huge gap in terms of opportunity in our country right now, where particularly for people coming from certain types of backgrounds, and I would say that this is across demographic but also socioeconomic as well, where it's getting that much more difficult to be able to achieve upward mobility unless you already have resources. What I think ultimately the insurance industry can do at this point is recognize that they currently have a problem with all things talent. And you can really check off two boxes here as you kind of think about recruiting the types of talent into the pipeline that have been kind of boxed out traditionally from our industry. From an economic and social mobility perspective, that's Safari's bread and butter. And we're looking to go after those types of candidates that the opportunity gap has probably most affected Insurance companies employ roughly 3 million people in our country today, and that's a huge opportunity where you're going to be taking candidates from all types of backgrounds and providing them with a lot of high-skill, high-opportunity types of career paths, which can serve a business purpose, but also help serve a societal need around really expanding access to high-income careers to essentially reestablish the middle class in our country. What were your impressions of the Global Insurance Accelerator and Des Moines? Throughout the 100-day process, I would say that the thing that I've been telling everyone is that I'm glad I came in with this pie-in-the-sky idea, and GIA was instrumental in allowing me to build a business around that. I think that's ultimately been the most valuable part of the experience for me. This accelerator in particular really could only work in a place like Des Moines because you have that engagement from all stakeholders. You have your investor company engagement. You have your investor company employee engagement. But then you also have the engagement from the broader insurance community in Des Moines. Regardless of if they're a GIA investor company or not, 
You have a lot of people that have provided a lot of their time, expertise, and knowledge to help the companies going through this program ultimately get off the ground, which I thought was the most instrumental part in getting us from zero to one. And I wouldn't call it zero to one yet because we have not started generating revenue yet, but it's actually laying the foundation for our company today. Our next story from the Insider Notebook. Chicago-based life and annuity company Couvert establishes Des Moines office by Joe Gardiaz. Couvert U.S. Holdings, a Chicago-based annuity and life insurance company with operations in Cedar Rapids, last week opened a Des Moines office and plans to staff the new location with about 50 insurance professionals within the next three years. Couvert was founded in 2015 by Deren Javeri, a former Salmon's Financial Group executive who saw a financial need among middle market Americans. Those earning approximately fifty to two hundred fifty thousand dollars annually. What we are doing is building a technology-enabled financial services business that is providing for the unmet needs of the middle market, Javeri told the business record. The big driving force for this is there are seventy to seventy-five million Americans at or near their retirement years, and the vast majority, ninety percent do not have a financial plan that solves their retirement, he said. Couvert is backed by three private investment firms, Altamont Capital Partners, McKenna Capital Management, and Access Holdings, which, when Couvert was founded in 2015, collectively managed $20 billion in capital. The company has grown rapidly, in part by acquiring several life and annuity companies over the past five years. In 2016, Couvert acquired Guaranteed Income Life Insurance Company in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and also established an institutional markets business based in Bermuda called Couvert Life Re. Then in 2018, Couvert bought United Life, which was the life and annuity arm of UFG Insurance in Cedar Rapids. Couvert also owns Lincoln Benefit Life in Lincoln, Nebraska, which it acquired in 2019. By acquiring United Life in 2018, we expanded our capabilities to be a full-service annuity and life insurance business that serves a broader geographic footprint, Javeri said. Since then, we've really expanded our business to be serving across the majority of the United States, he said. Last year, Couvert added nearly $1.7 billion in premiums across the United States, up from $50 million in its initial year. Couvert, which now has approximately $30 billion in assets, also has an asset management arm, Couvert Insurance Services, to invest its annuity and life company assets, and earlier announced the ability for KIS to manage third-party assets. Last week, Couvert opened its Des Moines office in the East Village at 508 East Locust Street and currently has about 10 employees there. The company plans to hire in a variety of positions over the next three years as part of a substantial growth it anticipates company-wide. Positions being recruited in Des Moines will include sales and distribution, marketing, actuaries, investment, and business managers. We're growing organically, Javeri said. Our year-over-year growth 2021 from 2020 was a 51% growth rate 
And we expect that 50-ish percent type of growth going forward. So we're going to continue to grow organically. And then we're going to look for accretive acquisitions that can enhance our overall platform. Those may or may not occur, but it's something that we are thinking about to enhance our business and platform. And some of those acquisitions, if they do occur, could be in Iowa or maybe elsewhere. It's just looking around at the opportunity and finding potential areas to grow in, he said. An insert in this week's business record from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry includes this story. Trends in Iowa Education by Haley Allen. As another school year wraps up, it feels a bit like New Year's Eve. Students, educators, and institutions alike are taking stock of what they have and creating new goals for the year to come that will continue the forward momentum of the last few years since the disruption by COVID-19. Schools have returned to in-person learning after adapting to remote and hybrid models during the peak of the pandemic. But that does not mean they are returning to the same kind of school structures they knew. Many facilities have taken this opportunity to listen to students more than ever before about what is working in education and what is not. The results are more versatile, accommodating educational programs that have aimed to solve some of the challenges brought to a head by the pandemic. Initiatives like work-based learning coordinators in schools, micro-internships, experiential learning, and increased flexibility within degree and certificate programs are working to create more involved, well-rounded students and increase access to different career opportunities. For businesses, these new trends in Iowa education mean an influx of students graduating from programs that have offered more diverse types of education and training, and potential job candidates with much more resilience and awareness of the world around them. It also means new chances to build stronger workforces from within by offering current employees opportunities to further expand their skills through educational partnerships with local colleges. Janae Jennison, Director of External Engagement at Central College, says she is hopeful and joyful about the future of the workforce, thanks to the skills students are gaining in these programs. We should be optimistic about the future for Iowa and for our talent here, she said. Educators and institutions outmaneuvered the pandemic by adopting new technology and reimagining what education could look like in the absence of in-person classes. What was started as a temporary strategy became a window for opportunity, as one of the biggest current education trends is now a flexible hybrid model of learning that incorporates face-to-face -face learning and at-your-own-pace schedules. This model is especially intriguing for business professionals looking to continue their education, as many people don't want to put their lives on hold while doing so, says Jill Hansen, Upper Iowa University Waterloo Center Director. I think it's about creating a realistic plan, she said. They can't quit their family, they can't quit their job, so how can they balance it all? Offering different options of flexibility along with support is how we can meet the needs of the students and extend that into the business world. 
Emily Shields, executive director of Community Colleges for Iowa, says both students and businesses are looking for a more seamless flow in and out of education as the need arises. Students seeking out opportunities earlier are leading to businesses with a large applicant pool to choose from. Jennison says the timeline of businesses hiring for interns is also starting as early as August and September for internships the following summer. This comes as employers seek to engage with these eager students early on, seeking to build the skills the company needs in a future employee. If you're a sophomore in college and you acquire a summer internship, that company is really going to try and retain you for the next two or three years. They'll hire you throughout the school year, take you on again in the next summer and the summer after that, and so on, because they really want to build students' employment experience, which in turn builds their own workforce with local talent, Jennison says. With this shift in understanding of how higher education can benefit students across the spectrum of degrees and careers that comes students finding entry into the workforce from a variety of pathways that differ from what has been seen as standard in the past. It's about understanding those wide array of options for all students in a better way, says Ann Lebo, director of the Iowa Department of Education and shifting our academic timeline to fit whatever their specific needs are. As an example, surgeons must spend much longer in school than those in technical apprenticeships, and both of those paths into the full-time workforce will have different timelines per individual. We have to celebrate all of these and better engage with our businesses and our schools to understand those array of options so we can prepare for a better future, says Lebo. Students are being more purposeful in their choice of careers and the type of companies they work for. According to Jennison, the students at Central College often express the desire to work for companies that are making a difference in the world and that hold values similar to those of the students and the generation as a whole. She says, things like philanthropic giving are really important to our students, and I think in the future, employers will really have to appeal to the heart. Ping pong in the break room and free coffee vouchers may have worked for millennials, but it seems the ever-connected Gen Z has tapped into a collective thinking toward the greater good. For Iowa, this means students looking to make a difference in their communities and fostering innovation from within. We need to promote those jobs for kids who want to stay in their communities, grow their communities, and be part of that investment, says Lebo. Our next story, Top Tips column, by Jack Cara, Senior Vice President of Assured Partners. Navigating a Hard Insurance Market Have you had difficulty securing commercial insurance or noticed your insurance premiums increase in the last couple of years? If so, there's a reason. For the last couple of years, we've been in a hard insurance market, which refers to a market cycle when rates increase underwriting requirements tighten, and capacity is limited. Severe weather events, large jury verdicts, 
COVID-19 and supply chain issues are all in part behind the current market cycle, which continues to present challenges. The rising rates for some lines have slowed, while others, such as cyber, are still experiencing double-digit increases. While we don't know how long the hard market will continue, there are steps you can take to help you navigate the market. First, start the process early. Getting an early start with your insurance professional is a great start. When you begin the insurance process at least 120 days in advance, you have time to address risks and exposures or determine a new strategy. Make sure your broker understands your business. More than ever, underwriters want more details about your business. When your broker understands your operations, your safety initiatives, he or she can better negotiate on your behalf. Regularly review existing policies. Think about how your business has changed over the last 6 to 12 months. It's likely that you have been responding and adapting to constant change, but is your insurance keeping up? Schedule time with your insurance advisor to conduct an annual review of your current policies to ensure your coverages are providing adequate protection. Boost risk management efforts. Risks are everywhere. In addition to financial risks, cybersecurity, building and equipment, and employee safety are among the many risks that need to be considered. When you can identify your risk factors, you can create programs to mitigate loss. Structured, customized prevention programs are critical to combating the ever-growing exposure to risk and keeping costs down. Know your loss history. Your risk management efforts should be priority one, but accidents may still occur. Investigate all incidents and near misses to understand what happened to prevent them from happening again. This information will be helpful during the renewal process because you may need to explain what factors contributed to a specific loss and what steps you've taken to mitigate future losses. Many factors impact your commercial insurance rates and coverage, including business size, industry, and claims history. During a hard insurance market, decisions regarding your insurance coverage may be difficult but an experienced insurance broker can help you proactively address risk, control losses, and manage exposures. Now, The Elbert Files by Dave Elbert. The Game Changer. It was a typical spring day in Iowa, cloudy, cold, and windy, when I saw my old friend Casey on the sidewalk across the street from the Des Moines Art Center. This will be a real game changer, he said as I approached. How so, I replied, not knowing exactly what he meant. The Supreme Court's abortion ruling, he said. If it's anything like the, uh, the draft Alito wrote, he continued, referring to the proposed ruling that Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito authored for a Mississippi abortion case, it will change everything. Isn't that a bit extreme, I said. It's only a draft opinion and could change a little or a lot before it's formally issued, which probably won't be for another month or more. Trust me, he said, it won't change, not by much. 
Assuming you're right, I said, how does it change everything? For one thing, Casey said, not since the Dred Scott decision has a Supreme Court case taken away rights on the scale that outlawing virtually all abortions would. The Dred Scott decision of 1857 is widely regarded as the worst decision ever by the Supreme Court, I argued. It denied citizenship to people of African descent and required the return of runaway slaves from free states. It was a major cause of the Civil War. This can't be that bad. Mark my words, Casey said. If this decision goes forward, it will be the most divisive force in this country since the Vietnam War. You remember how bad that was. It tore apart my generation, I said. It was as close as I want to get to a civil war. Abortion has always been a hugely emotional issue, he said. About 4,000 Iowans get abortions each year, and according to an Iowa poll last year, 57% of Iowans think it should be legal, and 38% say it should not be legal. That's pretty much in line with how the country as a whole breaks down. Like I said, Casey continued, except for the Dred Scott decision, the history of the Supreme Court has always been to expand individual rights. Now we're headed the other direction. Once this abortion decision sinks in, conservatives are going to want to claw back some of the other gains we have made in individual rights in recent years. You mean gay marriage and LGBTQ issues, I said? That, along with affirmative action and policies that benefit people with learning disabilities, Casey said. So who do you think leaked Alito's opinion, I asked. You can make up all sorts of reasons for anyone who is on or works for the Supreme Court to have leaked the opinion, he said. But my guess is that we won't know for a long time. Remember, we didn't learn who Deep Throat was, he said, referring to the FBI official who helped bring down the Nixon administration, until three decades after the fact. Now what matters is not who leaked it, but what happens next. What does happen next, I asked. A bunch of issues that had been front of mind now get pushed back. Issues like climate change, gun control, and racial justice, Casey said. Any issue that doesn't have near-unanimous consent gets shoved to the side. It will be harder going forward to find consensus on issues like infrastructure and education. Abortion will dominate this fall's election. In Iowa, it will drown out talk about clean water, rural broadband, health care, and prison reform. There's also the issue of trust, he added. If Alito's draft opinion is confirmed, we have prima facie evidence that at least two members of the current Supreme Court lied under oath when asked at their recent appointment hearings how they would handle abortion if it came before the court. They said it was settled law and they would not change anything involving settled law. And what about the senators who approved their appointments? Can we trust them? Casey asked as he turned and headed into a cold wind. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, May 13th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.